everybody. How are you? Uh, I, my name is Stuart Meister. Uh, I'm facilitating this. It's my great pleasure to introduce you to these two guys. We've actually just spent an hour and a half together having a lot of fun. So I hope we're going to have as much fun. In the, we, we've actually said everything we've yeah, got to say in the last exactly hour. That's exactly what I said. So, uh, so it may be that so we've got... We're going to duke it out. Yeah. We're going to come up with some completely different issues. Now you have to laugh discuss. again on the same jokes. Yeah. So Remind you have to be an mission. actor also, not just a moderator. Okay, I'll remember. Okay. When I go, when I go one, two, three, laugh. Then the joke comes. No, no, laugh. you're going to do the whole thing now, and he and I, we're going to be backstage. We're going to check if you remember. <laughs> yeah, the truth is I'm much more interesting than these two guys, so you're just going to hear yeah. from me now. We're going to be practicing martial arts. We're going to be practicing martial arts behind you. <laughs> Clash of the Titans. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is called the Clash of the Titans. We're not sure why, but... We're going to try and find something to clash on. Does everyone speak quite good English? Speak, put your hands up if you understand anything I just said. <laughs> Only half of you did that. Okay. The rest of you, it was really funny, very entertaining. <laughs> it was really good. You missed it. Um, so, yeah, my name, so with me as, uh, uh, let me introduce the two guests we've got here. Both guys... Uh, made their name originally, made their name as economists. They're both economists. So John Perkins uh, was the chief economist of a major American consulting firm going around the world, selling them infrastructure, other things that he then said they didn't really always need, but it was great for American business for him to sell it to them. And he suddenly woke up one day, left it, and wrote a book called Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which is a best-selling book uh, in which he reveals what he then did. And he's just, there's just a new edition that's just come out. So if you read that, you should buy the new edition, which has got new, new data in it. Yeah, buy it? Yeah, buy it. John says buy it. Um, Thomas Sedlacek, I think most of you probably know better than I do. So Thomas, as many of you will know, uh, was an uh, economic advisor to President Havel in the early days. Uh, he's, uh, he's studied uh, abroad. He's now, actually, he's on, a, he's on a sabbatical right now, but he's known to be the chief economist to one of the big Czech banks, which is the CSO. If I can read without my glasses, which bank is it? That's pretty close. CSOB Bank. He's the chief macroeconomic strategist there. Um, but actually... These guys are both economists, but really what they've made their name in is talking about values. And values is what we're going to talk a lot about today. Uh, I, I hope if we can keep it in some kind of order. Who knows? Um, I'm going to ask them to talk a bit about how they see the world, what they think we should do about it, um, and really try and look at what that means in the real world. Some of the big trends that are happening, how that plays into their view of what should happen in the world. And I'm hoping very much, and I will make sure we do this, we have time for you all also to take part in the discussion, to ask any questions, raise any points you want to make uh, towards the end of this session. So does that sound like a good use of an hour? There's some really good music on. Is your, so if you want to go, now's the time to go. But this is going to be more fun. We can sing too. We can sing too if we Speak need to. Speak for yourself. <laughs> so um, let me ask, start with you, John, if I may. Um, You've developed a whole new view of the world based on the death economy and the life economy. Just explain what that is, how you see the world operating, what should happen. Okay, well, uh, uh, very briefly, um, I actually think this place where we're holding this represents that transition. 
because a death economy is an economic system that's, it, there's many different factors involved, but perhaps the most important one is it's an economic system that consumes itself into extinction. It uses up all of its own resources for short-term profit. It's based on Milton Friedman, the economist who won the Nobel Prize in 1976. It's based on one of the things he said was the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. And so th this whole economic system has been built on that idea, maximizing short-term profits for a few stockholders, for a few wealthy people, regardless of the social and environmental cost. And in making that system happen, uh, everything is looked at as a short term. So you build industries around resources without the concern for the future. And so here you had a complex, a steel mill that was built around the resource of coal. And you built this amazing, somebody built this amazing, all these structures around here to produce steel from the coal, and then the coal ran out. And so the economy collapsed of this particular place. But now the life economy is an economic system that we must all move into globally, I think, which is a system that's built on regenerating destroyed environments, cleaning up pollution, creating new technologies that recycle, that don't dig up the earth anymore, that don't use resources like that, and that really honor um, things like art, child rearing, teachers, they're the people who are honored as much as, as the ones that are just out to produce short-term profits. And so I think what we're seeing here is, is what you, this place has made that transition. Uh, so today, this, 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 this reflection of the death economy is now this beautiful venue for doing what we're doing here. Music, art, um, all this incredible intellectual discussions, like these, these, these great intellects that are on the stage right now. <laughs> so, so this it really exemplifies uh, what I think that the whole world needs to transition, and and we we need to move from an economic system that is is failing, into one that'll be that that is successful. In fact, the new economic system, the life economy, is itself a renewable resource, and that's kind of that's what we're seeing here, this sort of thing. Fantastic. Well, we're going to look at what that actually really means in practice, but. Uh, Thomas, you're, you're best known in terms of published works for the economics of good and evil, kind of economics is, a, is an ethical process, not just a mathematical discipline. But you're doing a lot of work in a new area now. Do you want to talk about how you're, what, you're, what the work you're doing now and, and how this applies to what's happening in the world? Well, uh, with, a, with a colleague of mine who I think is somewhere uh, listening to music, we're, we're trying to work on uh, future economics. We wrote a book about, starts with the Epic of Gilgamesh, trying to look for major trends that we've always seen with developed mankind as it reflects in the economy. And we have this thesis that what's, what's happening, we're dividing the economics into three sectors, the spirit, the soul, and the body. The body of economics is the material, the GDP. The soul would be institutions, laws, things that aren't really real, but they organize the real. And uh, software is a good example of uh, soul. And then there is the, the spirit, the spirit of economics. Actually interesting because economics and spirituality, they seem to be at the opposite sides of the pole. And yet John Maynard Keynes, the most famous economist of the last century, keeps talking about this animal spirit. Uh, and there's been a lot of books written about the animal spirit 
all of them focusing on the animal part, anima meaning that it's the spirit, the joissance de vivre, in Czech I would maybe translate it as životní elán. Um, and that's actually a very, very, very big economic topic, but we've never actually looked at that it actually is a spirit, whether it's animal or not, green, yellow or what, it's, it's basically a spirit. So, so, so uh, you can also see it nicely in the company when I give lecture, lectures to businesses. Sometimes I get question asked, when will we no longer labor? And I always look at the audience and I say, well, you've never actually, that situation is today. I mean, how many of you actually labor with your hands, that you actually sell something that's material that you do with your hands? Can you lift your hands up? Yeah, that's, that's about right, yeah. Less than 1%. The rest of you tell stories to each other. That's what we're in fact doing here right now. A bank isn't anything else but codified stories. A contract is a story that you vow to, to keep. And so we've, we are trying to analyze the spirit of economics. What is it that we want? And it seems to me, and I'll end the question, question with that, that we that we want to change, but we are unable to. The spirit is willing, but the, but the body is weak. We want to be better uh, as companies, as, as, as humans, as economists. We don't want to walk the sewers again, as we did in 2009 and 2008. But we do not know how to do it. It's a little bit like uh, St. Paul, actually, in the New Testament, when he writes, I want to, be go I want to do good, but I end up doing evil. So. Um, the spirit of the West today is interesting because we don't seem to have new drives. When I was young, we had anarchists, communists, hippies, uh, punk movements, and they were all, they had a vision for the world and they listened to the appropriate music and they dressed in an appropriate way. Today, we have hipsters. And that, I think, to me, symbolizes quite, in other words, we have no new dream, no new philosophy. There is really not one single impressive philosopher that would say, okay, let's go in this way. Let's go the way of science and the human understanding and the tolerance between religions, for example. Um, we don't seem to have that also in music. There hasn't actually been any new style of music since, since the 90s. And this is somewhat debatable, but for sure, objectively speaking, there hasn't been any new musical instruments. We've electrified our guitars and our basses and our violins in the 70s, but since then, we haven't been playing new instruments. With one exception, there is one new instrument, which you see here quite a lot, and that's a mixing board. And I think that's a perfect um, parallel to the situation of the spirit, that, that we actually take old tunes and we put <laughs> into them, and that's uh, 2090s sort of music. So. Um, so this is why Trump could win with, 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 the, with sort of a hipster, retro, uh, let, let's go back vision, because there really is a lack of sort of this liberal democratic vision of the world. We seem to have achieved our goals, and we have no new dreams to dream. Okay, loads of stuff I want to ask you about there. But before I do, John, I've heard you talk about the fact that you think there's a new spirit of consciousness in the world. There is a new, there is a new energy in your, I think I'm right in saying is your view. And I'd like to know whether you agree that it's all stale and old or if there is. And, and of course, we're meant to be entering the age of Aquarius now from Pisces, you know, the Piscean age. The age of Aquarius, for those that don't know, the Piscean age 
high seas was about hierarchy uh, and following gods and gurus. The Aquarian age, we are told, we're entering is a more horizontal age, information, sharing of information, a, a total different consciousness in which we all take individual responsibility. Now, when so, the sun is in the seventh moon yeah. and Jupiter aligns with the Mars. We right? did say we'd end up naked on this, and that's yeah, what happens yeah. in here, isn't we'll it? We that. said we were going to do this completely naked, but we decided not to. Don't you think that Donald Trump kind of epitomizes the age of Aquarium? I mean, complete democracy, no, no, no authoritarian rule at all. But Donald Trump is not everything that's happening in the world. So I'm uh, kidding, you, obviously. Yeah, but do you think, uh, so to answer that, is there something new? Yes, happening? yes, I think there is. I think, I think we're actually going through a consciousness revolution. And, and I, I agree with everything that Tomas said about uh, you know, the instruments, the music, and so on and so forth. But there is something, I have the great blessing, I guess I could say, of, of, of having the opportunity to travel around the world a lot because my book's in like, I don't know, 40 languages now and I get to speak at a lot of places. Including the new one, out now. <laughs> and <laughs> um, recent, not, not long ago in China and then in Russia and Latin America, all over. And everywhere I go, we have people like this who are, who are waking up to the fact that we live on a very fragile space station. And that's the consciousness that we're really waking up to the fact that we live on this tiny, tiny, precious planet. And we're in the process of destroying that part of the planet that supports human life. We're not destroying the planet. The planet will survive us. But we are destroying that part that supports human life and the life of just about everything else that we find precious in nature. And I, really, I think people are waking up to that around the world. Now, it, the, the, the next step, of course, is to do something about it. And the fact that we're, you know, Tomas is working with a bank to change the value system, that's part of that, that consciousness revolution. The other aspect of it is every time there's a revolution, the, the people who benefit from the status quo try to put the brakes on. And that's what we're experiencing now with, with the Trumps, with the Brexits, with, with so much of going, what's going on in, in, in Europe, in Central Europe, all over Europe, is going on here, in, in the Czech Republic, it's going on everywhere, that, that we've got these, the brakes being put on by the people who think they benefit by the old system. And to me, that gives us strength, because it means that they're fearful. They know that we're, we've got something. We're winning. There's masses of people around the world that are waking up to this, including corporate executives. And, and so there is this consciousness, and at the same time, we've got this anti-movement trying to stop it. And I think like, you know, like good martial artists, we take strength from that. We take the energy that comes from the negative. We learn from the trumps of the world how, how weak that system is. We, we, we see the shadow side, and we use that to turn things around. Okay, so this is a good moment to look at what all this really means in practice. Okay, what does it do? So, you gave a really, I'd love to hear your story before, because I was, I was saying to Thomas, you, you've written books, you've got this philosophy, but actually you're an advisor to a commercial bank in the Czech Republic. And so you're seeing real decisions being made with real businesses, um, which are made in, I guess, unless you're involved, on traditional economic basis. So what changes as a result of this new way of looking at the world? Well, in the past, we used to say that the business of breweries is to sell beer. And this seems pretty, you know, straightforward and intuitive. It isn't exactly precise. I think the new way of looking at things is that the business of breweries is to harvest 
harvest beer culture. So suddenly you actually have to take care of the field, you have to actually take care of the ideology. When you actually buy a bottle of beer, the beer in the beer actually costs the least. It's a fraction of the price that you're actually paying when you're, you know, most of it goes to transport and ideology, advertisement and, um, and, and things like that. So even within beer production, we are moving into more spiritual, even the tangible beer, actually the majority, or when you buy food, the majority of the price of the food isn't actually the, the grain, the, the, the atoms, uh, but it's, it, 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 it's, it's the addition to that. How it looks in practice, well, I want to be as specific as, as, as I can. So we changed um, the whole banking group, changed the model of, of risk aversion. When I will lend money to somebody, I no longer uh, look at the risk that this person poses to the bank. This is a standard risk model that we have. Uh, but we, I look at him, what danger does he possess about the society in which he's conducting his, his business? Is it a potentially harmful business in 20 years? Will the rest of the economy be worse off? Is it a risk? Well, then I charge him higher interest rates. This is something that we should be able to do. Now, that having said, our business models don't work. We see that in 2009 and 2010. So people say, well, this is a fact. There is no number without a fact. I mean, there is no fact without a theory behind it. There is nothing like a naked number. Uh, it all, you, don't, you don't have one in its oneness. You can have one apple or you can have whatever, but one doesn't really exist. One plus one equals two is already a non-existing entity, which we find legitimate because we, we, we decided to speak this way. So every number that you read, you are already buying a, 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 a behind story which pretends as if it isn't there. You know, this is, this is uh, from, if you've seen The Usual Suspects, uh, movie Kaiser Soze at the end of the movie says, you know, the best trick that the devil played uh, on mankind is to pretend that he doesn't exist. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis and others. But, but um, I'm not as brutal as to say that there's a devil behind the scene. But the ideology of economics is fashioned in a way that it looks like physics. If you open the textbook of economics and the textbook of physics, it looks exactly the same. Very easy linear um, relationship, expressible in five level, five degree, five grade of math. But inside, there is very powerful ideology. For example, that nations should compete in GDP. GDP is a remnant of Nazism, because GDP grosses measures gross national product. If, for example, we measure GDP not according to the countries, but according to I don't know the color of our hair, there would be four groups. You have the, the dark hair, the blondes, the redheads, and the gray. And there would be these four groups that would have GDP oh, wait, going which, up which, and down against each other. Which one would be the persecuted minority? Then? I think redheads. I, think I, would, so. I, I would vote for I redheads if, if, if I'd be asked the opinion. <laughs> I mean, they used to burn us in Middle Ages at stakes, <laughs> and we're still not even well done, you know. Yeah. So um, That's uh, one prejudice yeah. that does appear to be able to be... I use it, this either. prejudice I use when I flirt. <laughs> With other redheads, you know, yeah. it's, it's, oh, it's, we are dying out. It's That's a necessity. It's you've got to keep the genetics. <laughs> let's let's pure. actually use sex for what it actually used to be used back in the day when we used to use it to multiply and to. Keep preserve our races that's or oh that's who, another thing hold on who thinks he's part of the viking invasion of the czech republic there's no question like, of course there you go of course anyway sorry i interrupted a much more serious so point. so no but if so for example if we measure gdp of women versus men 
you would read Financial Times like this. Okay, the, the men had minus 2.3% last year. Now the question is whether the active ladies should be again fiscally solidary and whether they should be, you know, changing the law so that the men work more than ladies and what sort of uh, industries and updates should we do. We would be thinking in male versus female, which I'm not saying would be healthy, but now we're thinking Germany versus Czech Republic. I'm just demonstrating that the most basic number like GDP already has a, a nationalistic and other ideologies pegged to it. So another example is, last sentence, we teach our students in class, not mathematics, we teach them that the best way how to live and conduct your life is to try to constantly maximize your utility. We also have this in our constitution, in the Bill of Rights, the pursuit of happiness instead of pursue of meaning, for example. That would be another alternative that I think is a much stronger graviton of our lives, but we translate our lives as if trying to maximize our utility, which is a philosophical stance, but not a fact of physics. Yet in economics, we present it that way. Now, just, I mean, for those of you who missed my workshop on Wednesday on narrative and storytelling, you'd have learned about story yeah. as the basis of reality, yeah. which is what you're talking about. You, gave, you told us a story before that I think illustrates that philosophical comment you just made brilliantly. Do you mind repeating it? About how you changed the frame by which you decided to extend risk. You mentioned it there, but you didn't tell yeah, the so story. There was, a, there was a one, big, one big Czech company, electrical company, I won't say the name, to which we actually said that, you know, the, uh, if, if, the, if the company is behaving in a risky manner towards not the ban, but the society, we will charge you higher interest rate because you are posing a higher risk. And if this is the way most banks would think, this would put a very huge pressure on... Uh, because banks are a little bit like, also this doesn't seem like the case, but we are sitting on your energy. You work 24, well, 24 seven, you work 40 days, 40 hours a week, and your, en your energy that you put in that labor goes to your bank, and if you don't care, what's happening to it. And we can do basically whatever with your money. So we are in fact harvesting or channeling your energies that you entrust. Uh, and the only thing that you care is the interest rate and that your money is safe. That's the only thing we cared about as well. But now we've learned from 2007 and 2008 that the business of business is not just business. That You can't actually behave in an artistic manner, especially if you're a bank, because we don't want companies to go bankrupt. We, if Czech Republic's, if the field gets over-harvested, for example, so the banks should be one of the elements of the system who should be not drunk, who should be soberly looking and telling everybody to, 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 to consider the risks that we didn't know about 10 years yeah. ago. Ecologically, 60 years ago, we didn't actually know that washing your car in a river actually damages anything. We actually didn't know that. Mm. Now we are told, okay, uh, nobody does it anymore. So it's simply that we, man, not economists didn't know this, mankind didn't know this. So we're getting somewhere to what might be practical in terms of this. So the way I see what you described with that uh, uh, company you mentioned is that you reframed the problem. You've, right. You told a different story. Yeah. And, and, you know, as, as we discussed before, money is a fiction. Yeah. It's a story. It doesn't exist. Credit that the bank gives you doesn't exist. Your country doesn't exist. 
The Czech Republic doesn't exist. Your marriage. Exactly. None of it. None of it. We do exist. But no, but it doesn't exist because it's just a story that people choose to believe and then you create symbols around that story and then everyone acts. The world changes as a result of that story. So when the Czech Republic's borders change, the story of the Czech Republic has changed and we all agree that's the new story and everyone acts as if that was always the story. Same with Britain, same with any other country. But I want to move to John because what you did with that uh, company was you reframed the story. You said instead of being about that company, that's our risk decision, it's actually about the whole of the Czech economy that is our risk decision and you're damaging the Czech economy therefore we're going to charge you more as opposed to actually you might be making loads of money you can still do it but it's going to be more risky so you change the question now John can we change the question on a global basis can we build that frame and make it a global thing or does this only really work in a small scale in one tribe one country one community what do you mean one tribe small country no, no, no. I mean, even, no, I mean any country. That's the country of, uh, that's the country of redheads. Any, any, Bohemians. Any defined community that, ha, you know, does this work on, um, my, my question? You know, we are, we're, we're global today, whether we want to be or not, whether we want to admit it or not, we, we are very much global. And our whole communications is around global, our whole transportation networks. But I, so I think what's important here is to recognize that all of reality, what we call reality, it depends upon the story. And I like to say perception, so there's really two realities. There's perceived rea- there's, 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 there's objective reality, these, these microphones, and perceived reality, the discussion we're having around the microphones. And like you said, there's no Czech Republic, there's no corporations, there's no culture, there's no religion, except as we perceive it. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it becomes, it affects all of reality. So I think what we're seeing now is, a, is this movement toward a new perception around the planet of suddenly saying, yeah, you know, like, the, the oceans really are rising. The glaciers really are melting. The polar bears are going extinct. Uh, what am, what's going to happen to my 11-year-old grandson? What kind of a world he, is he being brought up in? And I, and I notice a huge difference in the fact that we're having these kind of conversations. The fact that Tomas is, is able to bring these things up in a, in a major bank. I mean, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have done that. No. They wouldn't have let you do it. Yeah. You, you know, and, and, and that's changing. And, and, and so, I mean, if you want to take another example, all across the globe, in most places, the attitude toward gender has changed radically in the last 10 years. If, you know, if I use the United States, you know, when I was in college, you didn't admit it if you were gay. And certainly nobody was talking about trans sex and all these kinds and today it's becoming accepted around the globe so we can change our perceptions very quickly and when we yeah. change our perceptions it changes our our, our reality it changes our institutions it changes everything about how we relate to the world and i think today we're truly getting this perceptual change of what it means to be human yeah. on this planet and i i, I also want to mention that i I do a lot of work with corporations. I was recently speaking at the St. Petersburg, Russia International Economic Forum, about 12,000 people there, including Putin and, and Gutierrez and a lot of others. And during the off meetings, you know, in the, during what was, well, people are drinking wine, I had a lot of top executives from major global corporations say, you know, I want my company to do better. I know I've got grandkids, kids and grandkids, and, and I know that the climate is, we're in a climate crisis. 
But I'm afraid that if I, if I address this issue, I'll lose market share, half a percentage of market share. Or my stock price will go down, and then I'll be fired. And I'll be replaced by, by someone who only cares about market share. So that means that the whole population, we have to let these corporations know. We have to send out a new message. It's a, it's a, new, it's a new story. Yeah. It's the story. Yeah. We, it's, and, and it's happening. I believe the story is going out, and it's happening. And it just happen, yeah. has to continue to happen. No, no, just to, to demonstrate the point that e even ownership is ideological. There isn't really anything about these glasses that's yours. No. I mean, you haven't made them, you haven't invented them. And it feels really weird now that I have them in my hands, doesn't it, right? It feels really, really awkward. I mean, if I did it to your cell phone, it would be like me messing in your brain. So can, see, can, can I have them? You have it. Try to put I'm them in your trousers. See, there isn't, there isn't any chain here. There isn't, look. Like, there's nothing here. I gave real money for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, 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 the, and the beautiful, uh, this is beautifully demonstrated in the, in the story of Genesis, where the first ownership of mankind is the cloth with which they covered themselves. I thought it was a leaf. Well, yeah, first it was a leaf, and then they got, uh, a, so, so leaf was the first, Technology uh, um, that was the first time, according to the story, that mankind needed something else that it already was. Okay, we needed a leaf or, or and, 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 the, and the question that God asks is, the first question is, where are you? Which is an interesting question. And the second question is, who told you? Because Adam and Eve didn't know that they were naked. They didn't know. And now comes the nakedness part. You said the word sex first. Yeah. And this is exactly the whole idea of economics. Did Adam and Eve clothe themselves in the leaf or in the cloth because they were cold? Was it a biological need to be covered? Now, why did they clothe? Because they felt ashamed. It's ideology. So even that, in, there you go. <laughs> it's happening. In, in, it's other happening. Words, in other words, right here, right now, this place is hot enough for all of us to sit here naked. We're not clothed because we are cold, right? We're actually uncomfortably closed, close, close, cloth. Close. But, and here is my point, if we actually sat here naked, if we sat here naturally, přirozeně, kdyby bylo vidět naše přirození, tak bychom se cítili velice nepřirozeně. So if we sat here naturally, as nature produces, we wouldn't feel natural at all. I feel much more myself in the skin of Hugo Boss or whoever this one is. And this is, the, this, is the, this is the gap in which economics is born. I am no longer sufficient the way I am. I need externalities. So it's basically nothing else but ideology. You can also demonstrate it with non-economic areas. We talked about sex or this alcohol. Before we started. Yeah. Sex is something to a child. Imagine that you are 12 years old or 8 years old. And just the image of your father sticking his tongue into the mouth of your mother is repulsively disgusting. And I'm not going into the sort of more adventurous details that we do to each other in the intimacy of our bedroom. It's basically disgusting. That's actually, and also your parents had to do it at least once in their life. It's a not a very comfortable. And then something happens around the age of 24, 
and uh, <laughs> and, and, and you become addicted to it. Only if you read it. Well, my point is that it's an artificial desire, a desire that we actually consider to be very Freudian, natural. We had many very happy years of our life without ever thinking about sex. Or take, take the taste of alcohol. It actually doesn't taste good. The first time we drank beer was I don't really know why. Or smoking. It actually is disgusting. I mean, uh, or the taste of olives. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, or onions or any interesting food, is a learned desire. It's an acquired desire. Our desires, in fact, aren't anything else except for uh, ideology yeah. and storytelling. There's nothing natural about the way we conduct sex. For and example. you can always change the story. When you change right. the story, you change the, ide the, yeah. the ideology and therefore you change yeah. value systems Only and if you, if you change the statistics from nations to gender, you change the narrative completely. So uh, this is, uh, yeah, uh, uh, actually as evidence for the fact that different countries, different cultures eat different foods, for example. Right because that is the narrative of their culture and that's the practice in their cultures. So let's move into, uh, continue on this theme of what does this really mean in practice? What happens? So let's ply into this some of the big, fa I, I said this to you guys before, I sometimes feel with these kinds of conversations that we're in a room like this full of intelligent, interested people talking to each other and then 90% of the world is out there not having this conversation may be oblivious to it and, and, and not really as aware as we think everyone is. And do you think, that, do you think that's fair or That's not? fair. I don't need to know how this was made. I mean, there's maybe 10 people in the world that understand. What, I don't need to know how my shoes were made. I just need them to work. I don't need, this is why we have politics. This is why we are an expert society. I don't want to quarrel with my energy supplier every day about his markup on my energy bill. Yeah. We have a regulation committee where we hope and pray that these people are doing the caring job so then what in our changes? stead. What, cha what changes? I, I want to come to this point. Let's play in things like uh, artificial intelligence yeah. is happening. You know, I, I, I seems to me there are two conversations happening in the world right now in parallel, and I want to understand if they if they cross. No, but one conversation is about this stuff. The world is in crisis. The, there's a greater consciousness. There is change afoot. What should we do about it? Are the millennials changing their sense of all that stuff? And then the other conversation that I spend my time, a lot of time talking about, is the way technology is transforming businesses, the way we, the way we do everything. So there's a technological shift, artificial intelligence, et cetera, uh, uh, automation, et cetera. And then there's this kind of, we've got to go back to more basics, guys, shift. Do those two things, how do those two things fit together in, in what happens next? Well, I think, you know, if, if you look at, at, at what brings about change, it can be a pretty small number of people. So I, I often, being an American and a, and a, and a, and a student of American history, um, it's, it's said that in 1774, everybody in America believed that the, that the, Sov that, uh, the Soviets... <laughs> 1774, everybody believed that the uh, British were invincible biggest army in the world. There's no way a bunch of farmers and, and, and backwoodsmen in, in, in America could defeat them. And then in 1775, uh, George Washington goes before the Continental Congress, and he remembers that 20 years earlier during the French and Indian War, the biggest British army under the, their best general, Braddock, uh, and he, he was there, was defeated 
by a, small, by a much smaller force of, of French and Indians. And Braddock was killed, most of his officers were killed. Washington managed to make it out. So he says, no, no, the British aren't, in aren't, in aren't invincible. All you gotta do is hide behind trees. Instead of lining up like the French and the, and the British had always been doing, hide behind trees. And he was right. It changed the whole perception of warfare. Of course, the British immediately yelled, foul. You can't do that. That doesn't, that doesn't satisfy the rules. You can't of, do that. that doesn't, you can't hide behind the trees. <laughs> that's not in the rule book. You know? We're still angry. We're it's, still angry. We're still, yeah. And, and, I, and I'm struck by how, you know, during the war in Vietnam, the Americans called foul when, the, when Ho, Ho Chi Minh tried to, tried to run people through Laos and Cambodia, the Ho Chi Minh Trail. No, you can't do that. They're off limits. Um, so, but it changes the whole perception. And, and even so, it's said that, that, that during the American Revolution, about 30% of the people were, were Tories. They, they favored the British. They wanted to stay British. And about 30% of the people were, were pro-breaking away from the British. And the other 30% just didn't know what they thought, and they didn't care. They'd go along with whoever won. And I think we're at a situation like that today, where there are massive numbers of people around the world who believe that we must change. Now, a lot of those people don't really want to change. Like, do we really want to change? Do you, in this room, I mean, we're all comfortable. We get good lives. We're able to come here and listen to good music. And, and we may know we, we got to change. Like, oh my God, I can't go out there and buy another shirt. But gee, that's a really nice looking shirt out there. And, and so we're not sure we, we want to change. We're afraid of change. Half the world's population can't even think about change because they're just putting the food on the table for the next meal. And then there's these people at the top that think that they've got it made and they want to stop anything that looks like change. So, but, but we just need to, to so there's, so there's that, that blockage that gets in our way. And if we can just get through that blockage and realize that change is going to be fun, we're going to have fun doing this. It's going to be really fun to have AI and let them do the, the manual, well, most of the work for us, but we're gonna tax the hell out of them or whatever you wanna call it, so that the rest of us can go out and make music and write books and, um, and do what your, what your mother and father did when you were 12 and you didn't like it, but now, now you might like it. And so we, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll have plenty of time for yeah. everybody to stick their tongues in, their, in somebody else's mouth. Yep, yeah. <laughs> It's kind of a vision but of you. To, uh, the age of leisure has been promised for some time. And uh, e what, what do you think? Because you, so, you know, particularly in relation to your mind, body, spirit kind of, you know, view yeah, of the world. Yeah, we are. Uh, of course, I'm. You know, my lay hobby is mythology and, and, and theology. So I'm of course reading this from the vantage point of, of 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 all thinkers, including philosophers, who are always saying that the mind controls the matter. Uh, this is from Plato to Christianity and Christianity. The body is basically a leftover animal that sort of... Uh, and the ancient gods wanted us to sacrifice. Uh, you know, in economics, everything is about demand and supply. Yeah? So back in the days, the gods demanded the sacrifice of supplies, the firstborn of the supplies. Now gods want the sacrifice of desires. They no longer want to sacrifice potatoes, but the, the, but the demand power. And it's also interesting that... Um, the, the, the gods want us the oldest, the firstborn um, desires, desire to, to be aggressive and desire for sex. Those are two desires that are quenched in Christianity and in other religions as well. But the point why I'm saying is that in all religion, body, bodily matters are dis despicable. Um, you know, Jesus Christ was, was of immaculate conception, meaning 
sorry to say, all the rest, concept, all the rest of the conceptions were maculate. Yeah. You're all dirty because your parents did it, you know. Um, so, so, so in, and, but now, okay, going again, if you look at the firm, only the people at the lower strand actually work at the, at, the, at the line. Then you have a band of managers and mid-managers who only tell stories and organize each other, but they don't touch no work. And if you go up in the, in the hierarchy, the boss, the CEO, he doesn't even open his emails. He doesn't even drive his car. He doesn't even, if he's a proper CEO, he doesn't even organize his calendar. So what is he doing, or she, at that? Well, she or he is taking care of the spirit of the company, meaning various things. So the spirit is, is there, and then the soul, the institutions, the managers, and then comes the, the bodily part. My point is that the whole society is going this way. So the, the garbage cleaners of today would be, you know, pretty Star Warsy cool types of dudes 30 years back. And even those are doing much less work than they used to do. So my whole point is, and with artificial intelligence and virtual reality, in fact, I think that we are, we've begun a rapid process of, uh, eval uh, of um, evacuating bodily form. Life is today moving, or our attention, let's put it this way, our attention is moving from the real into a newly constructed hyperspace of, uh, of, of, of pure spirit with almost no physicality so left. So coming back to the, the world of real companies, you know, how do you, if you're analyzing a company as a mind, body and spirit, and 80%, 90% of the work in that company is actually done by robots, as many motor companies, yeah here in the Czech Republic and elsewhere do. How, what is, where is the mind, where's the body? I mean, these robots don't, you know, the, we're, we're in Blade Runner territory. I mean, wh where's the mind, body, and spirit in that company? So, 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 so um, uh, to answer this question, I'd like to complicate it a little bit more, because I think by that it's going to actually be easier to answer. There has been many debates that you've read how robots will substitute our labor again coming to the demand, uh, sorry, supply and demand. So they will substitute our supply, they will work in our stead. I tried to go a little bit one step further and imagine a situation in which robots or artificial intelligence will also substitute our desires. And then the normal world of you, you are satisfying your desires either for sex or food or shelter or whatever, these would be so, solved by the AI as if in the background and you as a free human spirit could finally not matter with scratching. Aristotle, when they asked him about masturbation, he, asked, he answered that it's like scratching. You don't want to scratch it, but if it itches, you got to do it. But I'd be much better without the itching, he says, which is interesting. He also wants to get rid of sex because he has noticed that it's same movements, you know, all the time. Uh, so he, uh, so maybe uh, going back to being serious, the, the nice philosophical and economic question is what will remain of you if your desires will be automatically sorted out in your background? Like when you have windows, all these processes are happening in the background. You don't have to, you know, tell the printer what exactly to do. You just order the spirit and the rest of is done. So, so Tomasi, you're saying that, for example, like they can take virtual reality and, and by that process, you can get the same feelings that you, without actually sticking your tongue in somebody else's mouth. You could experience that without doing it. You will experience new emotions and some old emotions will go away. So 
yeah, when we left the forests, we also thought, well, maybe we will lose our ability to climb trees, and we have. And also, you know, if you know Black Mirror, the nice thing about Black Mirror is imagine that that's actually happening today and try and uh, shift somebody from uh, 19th century to today. Kids are no longer playing in the, in the, in the playground. That's a, that's a Black Mirror scenario. I don't smell the, the, the f smell of fresh baked bread. I don't hear horses. I don't have a sword. God, and none of you, so many strange people, and none of you is armed. How crazy are you? And I miss these things. I miss sword fights, and I miss our poetry slams in the pub. But we will have, we will, so these emotions, the wetness of a tongue that's not yours in your mouth, uh, is probably going to go away. Is this your, sorry, is, it, uh, is this your view of what will happen, what should happen? Well, or is it just a theory of what might happen if we're not careful? And also for thousands of years, people didn't brush their teeth. So this whole kissing with the tongue is a quite new, newly pressurable uh, thing, you know. But no, of course it's a theory. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the way how I try to imagine or orient, orient myself in the world. I'm looking at things that are disappearing from the real world. Maps have disappeared. CDs have disappeared. Cameras have disappeared. Letters that we wrote to our friends disappeared. Um, and, and I'm just seeing how we are gravitated into this new realm, new heaven that we've created for ourselves. And it actually fits quite nicely with the religious ideology that, or ideas that Buddha or Christ and others had about, about the future of mankind in actually living in bodies that are not really biological, not having uh, problems with time being able to do evil, but it's a sort of an evil that we encounter in computer games. It isn't evil, evil. It's just evil to have something to shoot at, you know. So we will have Nazi soldiers, but just for the point of having a nice little so computer you, game. You are, you need, in your sabbatical year, you need to write the film script. I should There's write no a question. film script. <laughs> Actually, um, you, before I open this up, which I really want to do now, you used a phrase before which I really want you to share, which would be a great title for a film. You said about in the future. In the future, was it got the machine will think? Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll I listen to this phrase, it's fantastic. About how we will survive one day in, in the artificial intelligence. And I was saying that the way I read the book of Genesis is as divine or God's attempt to create himself an artificial intelligence. Because to gods, we must look precisely as artificial intelligence will look like. And our relationship to the entities in the artificial intelligent world will be similar to our relationship with our mythical deities. We have a chance to survive as mankind if we manage to make the new entity of artificial intelligence praise us and occasionally feed us as gods that created them. So let's be right. So I the study of uh, theology oh, might become sorry. useful for our own survival. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, how dare you take my glasses? I'm going to strangle you. Uh, yeah, so that's somewhere between Blade Runner, The Matrix, Terminator. It's all in there somewhere in terms of... And Star Wars. And read Thomas's, Thomas's new book. You thought you were here to discuss economics. We're not. What I want to do now is give you guys a chance to ask any questions, make any points you want to make about that. So there's a gentleman... In the, by the way, as the mic comes... For those of you who are used to seeing Thomas on television speaking Czech, is it really strange to see him speaking English so fluently? I wondered. But so, yeah, do you, go ahead. All right. You talked, I'm going to, talk to you, uh, ask you a question, Tomasz. Um, you talked about the body basically being extraneous, that it's not, that the body is basically extraneous. It's not really part, it's, 
kind of an extra limb that we don't need. How do you compare that to the idea of the body being embodied consciousness? Did everyone, did everyone understand that? That was a very deep question. Uh, it might be worth just, so do you want to just explain, do you understand what he's saying? Yeah, if yeah. so, can you explain it in your answer? It's so a basically, it's a, it's a problem that we've had, again, in philosophy with dualism. Are we, uh, as Slavoj Žižek puts it, are we animals possessed by spirit? Because all these horror movies, if you notice, there's always alien or something that possesses us and then it comes out and Žižek reads this as us animals, you know, walking on four and then some demon called whatever rationality possessed us and we stopped doing the thing. In fact, some um, uh, uh, aboriginal cultures believe that monkeys are over-evolved human beings that actually understood that why talk and why work when we can actually, you know, live our lives happily in trees. <laughs> and the remaining idiots that still think that talking and mathematics is pretty cool, yeah, they can rot in their little buildings and, you know. So, um, anyway. Um, so the question is whether complexity can give rise to consciousness and whether it can be separated. It seems that this could be the case. If even in, in traditional mythology or Christian mythology, it is that it, it is God who breathes the spirit. And so it's separable. He takes matter and he breathes a, a spirit into it. So I believe that it is separable. I uh, also post, post mortem life in all Christianity is based on the promise that you can, or some, some form of you, can continue some sort of existence without the, the atoms and the electrons. Right, but that's your consciousness continues, not in this form, but in another form. Yeah. But right now, your consciousness is basically embodied in your body. I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually stop this because- But that's uh, a long, long- It's like a long, this is big discussion. philosophical discussion. Yeah. And okay. I want us to, I really want us to come back to an extent of what we actually, what this means in the real world today, what we do. And there's a gentleman there, yeah. and there's a gentleman just, be, any, any women as well want to? There's a lady here, so let's go, this gentleman and that, and that lady afterwards. Okay, uh, everything what you said sound, sounds really positive, like for the positive uh, future, but I wonder, even if we are in the global world, the different parts of the world are in the different state, do you not worry that even if we will be in 10, 20 years conscious about, um, about uh, environment and all these issues about the climate and stuff like that, that we will be like a, a weak part of the world and some other nation which is not yet in that state will just take over by old way, like war? Can I, that's a great question, and uh, John, I'm gonna put it to you, I mean, and also, of course, that we talked before, China, we haven't talked about China as a phase in this, for example. So, John, what did you, yeah, yeah, by the way, sorry. I should say, if you want to ask a question in Czech, and you don't speak good English, you can do, we can get translation, so please feel free, we're in the Czech Republic, to speak in Czech. C can I answer in Czech? Yeah, you can answer in Spanish. No, I can't. I can't answer in Czech. Uh, sorry, I can't. But um, so China. I mean, it's, it's happening today with China. So, like when I was an economic hitman back in the 70s, we were basically pitting ourselves against the Soviet Union, and uh, there was a, there was leverage there. So, if a country, if I if I put too much pressure on a country like let's say Colombia, South America. Um, they could then start to look toward the Soviet Union and say, hey, 
if you guys are going to bully us too much in the, from the United States, we're going, to, we're going to get protection from the Soviet Union. Even if they didn't really believe that they wanted to do that, they would use that. And then 1991, detente, I mean, it was happening here a little bit earlier, but we, the, 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 the dissolution of the Soviet Union, suddenly the United States became the only superpower in the world. I think we blew it. You know, we had the opportunity to really show the world what democracy and true capitalism could do, and we didn't do that. We, we went on and exploited a lot, our companies exploited. But now we've got China coming along. And that's fascinating. I spend a lot of time in Latin America. I'm going there when I leave here. And I talk with, world, with leaders of countries there, and they'll say, well, we're, we're, we're much happier to take loans from China than from the United States now. In, in Latin America, our neighbor, our hemisphere, you know, because they say China's never assassinated one of our leaders or overthrown one of our governments. You've participated in that. China's never put military people in our soil. You've done that. China's never uh, demanded that we vote against Cuba and the next United Nations, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, China is trying to steal all those resources. Very similar, trying to dominate resources. So, so we're looking at a situation now where we have this, a new clash. Uh, this, may be, this isn't the clash of titans, that's the clash of titans. And how's it gonna emerge? You know, well, I, I imagine that Tomas can tell you because he's an economist, a real economist. I'm just sort of a fake economist. And he, it's the so first he, summer that I hear that he, I'm a real economist. Thank you. I'm <laughs> going to put that in my CV. He can, he can forecast the One future. One has to be. Because economists yeah. forecast the future, you know. So, but, but the thing is, is I think that uh, I, I took really good, great hope. I, I was lecturing at an at a MBA program in China, in Shanghai, a few years ago. And the Chinese students there, I, who I spent a lot of time with, you know, drinking beer or whatever, uh, not just in class. And, and they told me, you know, China, we, we've created a miracle here. We're the only country in the history of the world that's had double-digit economic growth for three decades, which was true. It's changing now. But they, and they said, but it's come at a terrible price socially and environmentally. But we've shown that we can create a miracle. We've done it. And so now we, this generation, we who are now in this business school, we're going to create an environmental, we're going to create an environmental and a social miracle. We're going to become the greenest country on the planet. So now, I, I, I think they believed it when they told me, will they do it? I don't know. But I think what, what, what we are seeing is across the globe, in every country, everywhere across the globe, people are waking up to the need to create a new system, for the need to change. Right. So, so I think it can be global, and I think it can also be local. It needs to be both. We do it locally uh, by you know, buying locally, going to co-ops, and helping local farmers, and having farmers markets, and what we've got out here with people selling things to local people. But we're also doing it, we need to do it globally in the same way, where we, it's really a change of that perception, where we realize that it's not about maximizing short-term profits. The goal, the solution here really is to change the perception to one that says we have to maximize long-term benefits for everything, for humans and for trees and for animals. We have to maximize long-term benefits. And in a way, as when we were having a discussion earlier, the Chinese in a way do that. They look at the long-term. They, yeah. They're very patient about the long-term. I'm, I'm just going to stop because I want to get some other questions. But how, your question was, a, will other people come in and if we're being all good, they'll come in and be bad and win the markets. Hopefully that's answered, there's hope there. There's a lady here, and then Thomas, I'll let you come in on, yeah. that, on both those questions, but yeah. 
Thank you very much for a great debate. I'm Sinologist, so I was going to ask about the China. So my question is about the trade war when we are mentioning United States and China. What is your opinion? Because I found it as the only good thing that Donald Trump was going to start. So what is your opinion you about it? So you think it's a good thing that he Yes, I think it's it. a good thing. Because he's taking ways. on he's Yes, taking on, on China, China especially it. on the Chinese companies like Huawei. So I think we should start doing right. something. So what is your opinion about it and how it's going to end up? Thank you. Very interesting. Thank you. So, uh, Thomas, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, uh, maybe I'll just re really briefly uh, address the consciousness issue and it has also to do with the hopes whether we can have. I mean, uh, an entity doesn't have to be conscious at all in order for it to be read by us intuitively as conscious. So, for example, the internet, um, let me, uh, the, the rings, the ring has a will of its own. Um, uh, you can start a game and then the game starts playing you. This is a very common topic that Kundera writes about. Usually somebody, usually a male, starts a game and then the game sort of gets alive, although we know it's not alive, it's just a game. And it sort of starts to have a will of its own. Now let me ask you, internet, if you had to call it either an organization or an organism, which word would you pick? Organism. Organism. Everybody that I ask uh, says organism. Organism has life of its own. Of course, we know the internet is dead, technically speaking. It's just a bunch of wires and information. But there already is some sort of spirit that we intuitively, of course, technically speaking, it's not an organism. But upon sort of the rule of thumb, the way we structure our language, um, we consider that to be a living entity. Now, whether that living entity will have and also, we want this living entity to have our values, but not act on them like we've acted in our history. Because the history of mankind isn't nice at all. Just take the last 50 years, which were really pretty decent on all standards, and, and that's not how you want your artificial intelligence. So like God who was creating mankind, he's creating an entity that, they, that has the same values, but certain information it is deprived of having. So in other words, it's like the only problem with digitalization is actually an economic one. If digitalized, and this is actually sort of, you can reread it as an old Marxian topic about the capitalist versus the non-capitalist. So if digital blessing fell on everybody in the equal way, the way I imagine it is that I get a clone looking like me, talking like me, he comes here, does the talk, I don't get any money for this, but you know, usually they pay me to eat. And I, as the real me, my clown would be working for me in whatever company that you're working, and I would be able to enjoy the benefits of that. If, if AI would be structured like that, there wouldn't be a problem. But if one person would own these robots, and you would be, you would be eatless. So it's a little of a foodless. So it's really the economic problem that we need to solve. Otherwise, we're getting the winner-takes-it-all situation globally that we've, that we've never seen. Thomas, I'm going to uh, interrupt you. We've got very little time, and I'm very keen that the lady, and I'm people get, uh, get their questions answered. So she said, you're, you're, you were, you know, you're on a sabbatical, but you're the chief macroeconomist for a major Czech bank. She's, asked, she's saying, Are we, should we be happy that at last someone's taking on China in the world? What's your view on that? I'm a big critique of economics, as you all, all know, checks better than anybody else. But there's one thing about a, a trade that's superior to religious or even cultural debate. It gravitates countries together. Uh, if people learn how to... Because the basic thing about trading is that you have to have same price, but different values. If I sell you this pen, 
the price that we agree on has to be higher than my value of the pen, otherwise I wouldn't sell it to you. And your value of the pen should be higher than the price, otherwise you would never buy it. So we need to have an agreement on the price, that has to be exact, but we also have a f must have a fundamental discrepancy about our values. Having different values is a good thing for an economist. So we go around, or for business people, we go around looking for different preferences. So if Chinese are very good in drinking beer but not good in producing it, then We'll, we'll say, so I believe that, uh, and, and this you can't say of religion. Religion doesn't look for different value systems. It tolerates them at best. Politics, uh, also not looking for, they're looking for people, they're convincing people to, 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 to join your ideology. So, so um, uh, and, and, and the, the trick of European Union has been, okay, instead of having the hippie make love, not war, this would be the idealistic, this would be the good man, this would be the pravdoláskarsky, sluníčkarsky, let love join us up. But we were not so idealistic. We came and we said, you know, okay, trade. Make trade, not war. And that happened. Germans no longer hate the French. French no longer hate the Italians. We make jokes about each other, but they're all friendly jokes. We don't mean harm to Hungarians no more. Uh, the Irish are fully respectable folk these days. Remember back in the day, they have become the pride of, of European Union. Back in the day, there used to be no dogs, no Irish allowed. Uh, you know, they're used actually. So, so, so in this one specific example, I would actually say that um, trade is the most capable gravitational force of bringing different values together to talk because we need to have the price. So we need to have a language that is in common and perhaps through that we'll be able to sort um, uh, the, the values of human trade, uh, the human rights, etc. So we should, like the Slovak president did, every time we're dealing with them, we should be able to create, we don't agree with those values, but instead of not talking, let's talk. Okay, uh, we are... All Pretty much out of time. John, do you, want to, do you have a quick thought on that? Yeah, I mean, I, trade is really important. There's no question about it. And we are a global society. And I think it's really important to, to recognize that we think about China stealing rights to things, stealing technology. The, the Japanese did that back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and, and they ended. And I think the Chinese are going to come around to understand that they can't get away with this. Uh, but I also think, and, and we talk about, I've heard some, several of the sessions here talking about how the Huawei is, is controlled by the state, and it's, well, so, so is Raytheon. So in the United States, our defense industries are, are hugely dependent upon the state. Many of our biggest industries, even com com companies like General Motors and Ford, they're very dependent on the military and on the state buying, buying their things. So it's not just China. I mean, we've, we've, we've used that, and they may be doing it more than others, but this is nothing, nothing new, and I think it's part of their process of going through the development phase. And, and in any case, I think it's, the, the fact of the matter is the Chinese are on the rise. The Americans are, America is kind of declining. We'll see what happens. And, but, but how do we deal with that? How do we not make the Chinese the bad people? And when you make them, when you perceive them as the bad people, they become the bad people. And how do we then introduce them into, into a, the world, the global economy, in a way that will encourage everybody to get better? And I think that's the, that's the question we need to all ask ourselves. And we'll end on that question. Thank you so much, everyone.